Clearly, this podium was not designed for someone with notes. Okay. We don't have any pressing announcements other than the Lord's Supper coming up this Sunday. <clears throat> and we have the call to worship. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's bow our hearts and heads in sound preparation for worship. Let us turn to him 481, 481. God, we're thankful that you've given us the light of your word, and given us your spirit, that we have embraced your gospel and the good news of Christ Jesus and submit to you day by day. We ask, Lord, that we would continue to persevere in the callings as Christians. Be with us this evening as you've promised in your word. In your name alone we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have Psalm 131b. 
Okay, this one's you God for you have indeed called us your own you have bought us with the price of Christ Jesus you have made us your people and your sheep 
And we gather this evening, Lord, thankful for yet another Lord's Day of peace and safety in our travels to and from, Lord, and to be with the saints, God, to hear your word, to sing praises, and think about you and the works of creation through this day. And Lord God above, we pray in particular that you would be with us this evening, that we would focus our attention upon you, and that, Lord, we would be blessed in the worship of your holy, great, and awesome name. We ask God in particular, Lord, that you would be with your church, that you would bring peace and prosperity to the church of God in this land, Lord, and that she would prosper, not just materially, Lord, although we certainly pray for one another individually and as families to that end, God, that we would have the blessings of the work and the neighborhoods that we are in, God, but especially, Lord, spiritually, with the truth of your word, God, and in maturation and practice and obedience to your law. We ask God for our medical concerns this evening, for those who have chronic ailments that have flared up, and those in the hospital, God, or in rehabilitation recently, Lord, that you would be with them and help them, God, to persevere, to take care of their bodies as best they can. Uh, we lift up uh, the Stansberries in particular, Lord, with their son. Uh, that you would be with him and them, God. We thank you for the times they've had together for these many years. And we ask again, Lord, for the healings of our body and that we would trust in your providence, Lord, even if there is no healing, that we would have the wisdom and access to good medical care and health for our body, Lord, to take care of what you've given us, God. We are, great, again, grateful for the great medical care that we have here, although we wish it were better in some regards, but we still have much freedom and an opportunity, Lord, to do what we can to take care of our body. We pray, God, for the COVID situation, although it has taken a long time, it seems forever, for things to become more normal uh, and more places across this nation, especially where we live in our areas here in Colorado. We're thankful that they are coming back to normal. The, the newer strand is not as serious as it used to be. Nevertheless, Lord, COVID is a problem for those who are high risk. Uh, Lord, so we pray for them. We're thankful, God, that they have access to care and have access, Lord, uh, to preventive care in particular, God, that would continue, uh, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would be with us as a church in the callings and places in life that we find ourselves in, Lord, for the young and old alike, that the youth among us, God, would use their strength and energy for the good of the church and to help those uh, who have been here and have knowledge and experience to give them, Lord. They would learn from these things and go further in their life than we have in ours. We certainly pray that for our children, God, as they learn our truths uh, and our experience and your truth and your word, Lord, and they can grow thereby. We pray for the aged among us, God, that is everyone else, relative category to be sure, that uh, we would take the energy of the youth and their imagination and opportunities, Lord, for the good of the church and for one another, the God above. We pray, Lord, for the rich and poor and everything in between as well, God, that we would help one another and to be with one another. The world would see, God, that we don't make divisions as the world does with respect to age and wealth, with respect to the kingdom of God, that young and old and rich and poor alike are entering and can enter the kingdom of God if they but repent and believe in Christ Jesus. And meanwhile, we show the world how we take care of one another, God. Uh, We don't uh, ignore these differences, for they are part of what it means to be uh, human, and humans, Lord, are saved. And so, Lord, salvation does not change these distinctions in God. We who are rich and we who have much can... Use such, Lord, for one another, for the poor amongst us, God, for those in need. We pray that we have those opportunities, and they will continue, Lord, in spite of such a difficult and questionable economy. And for the poor among us, God, uh, to have the humility to take what is 
needed for them, Lord, and to learn and grow thereby and to use their abilities, God, that they may have, that the rich do not have, either spiritually or in other ways, Lord, to be helpful as well. We ask, God, that we continue to have unity in our church, unity in our presbytery, and unity in our denomination. We ask for your special, special blessing upon us this evening, God. Be with us, we pray. Help us, Lord, to bless your name and to learn from the preaching of your word this evening. In your name we alone, I pray for your glorious name alone, we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. the giving of the tithes and offerings, God, we ask for your special providence to be upon them, Lord, and for the wisdom of the congregation and the session, and particular, Lord, and the dispersal of the funds to help those in financial need and physical need, God, and to help spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Obviously, we're coming to the end of this book. Zechariah 14, chapter 14 is a, um, an amazing chapter. It is a debated chapter, as we shall see, not debated in the sense of uh, orthodoxy or, or whatnot, but in what exactly is it referring to, as we shall see. Let us listen attentively to the word of God, Zechariah 14, 1 through 11. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east 
to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee, and as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish, and it shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that the living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. And all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Bethlehem, Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hanal to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Let us pray. With these awesome words, Lord, and this amazing picture of the future God, we read of the coming judgments and hardships upon the church of Jesus Christ, here summarized as Jerusalem, but also, Lord, more words about deliverance of your people and the greatness that is to come, God, when Jesus Christ shall return and we shall all dwell safely in Jerusalem, God above, and there shall no longer be any other utter destruction or curse upon us or upon this world. We long for that day, God, in spite of the bad times that may occur, Lord, but we know there are better times beyond that, God, and a new heavens and a new earth. Help us to that and be encouraged by this prophecy as it was encouraged meant to them of old, Lord, to look to the future of the coming and the deliverance of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In name alone we pray. Amen. The last chapter of Zechariah, as I mentioned, is something to behold. I haven't read all of it. We continue to read the rest of it here. And you have uh, pictures of plagues and a description of every nation leaving, coming into Jerusalem and uh, keeping the Feast of Tabernacles and even the pots and the land shall be declared holiness to the Lord, even the most common mundane things in the land shall be set aside and special before God. It's something to behold, to be sure, especially if you grew up like I did in dispensational premillennial circles. It paints a grand battle and a grand deliverance from God Almighty. It has enough details to tantalize the imagination, but is vague enough for commentators to debate its full meaning and application. It's, uh, as one commentator points out, T.V. Moore from the 1800s, he says, the general facts predicated are a wide combination against the church, a time of trouble ensuing, in the midst of which the Lord appears in terrible power, destroys the enemies of his people, establishes the church in permanent glory, inflicts enduring punishment on the finally wicked, and brings about a state of holiness that shall be the last and perfected state of the church. That's quite a mouthful. And it's a general description of the future from his position. As we'll see that some believe it is referring to specific events, either before the time of Christ, after the time of Christ, or in the future yet to come. My take for now, I'm not dogmatic, is it's a, it's a 
picture of the age in which we find ourselves in progressing until the time of Christ returns and an overlay, a twofold overlay of immediate things because there's pictures of destruction and judgment. As we read here, and it shall come to pass, verse 16, everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship. And um, those who do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord on them, there will be no rain. So it has this description as though there are people resisting God. How can that be in heaven? So that's why I see it as a two-layered picture overlaying heaven and earth right beyond our event horizon, as they say in the sciences, beyond what we can fully comprehend. That's why it's using the here and now or the ancient Near East description of things describe the new heavens and the new earth, but also it talks almost as though there's still sin there. There's people resisting God. How can that be? Because it's also this present age as it comes to final fruition when Christ returns. So it's compressed that way. That's my take on it. You don't have to agree with me. That's fine. But that's how I'm going to interpret it. And so we read, uh, again, the commentator points out, it seems uh, to point to that great struggle of the powers of evil with the church, which is to be ended by the coming of Christ in great power and the complete establishment of his kingdom and glory. It is therefore parallel with the predictions of Enoch concerning the coming of the Lord with 10,000 of his holy ones, as you recall, with Ezekiel 39, chapter 39, about the battle of Gog and Magog, and the corresponding passage in Revelation 20, which we'll talk about a little bit, referring to the same great events. So these are uh, massive prophecies of the end of the age of the New Testament era in which we find ourselves in. And he sees them being described in three different ways there, right? The Battle of Gog and Magog, Revelation 20, and then Enoch. And then, of course, here in Zechariah. Again, I see this chapter as not describing one event, but as taking all the events and describing all the judgments and all the difficulties and suffering described as one event here, but that one event is a picture of everything going on through the New Testament era until Christ returns. And it culminates with Christ returning and wiping out the enemies. And we have a new heaven, a new earth. That is, uh, sin has gone away with and everything's better. But it's all compressed. And it's an overlay, again, of the perfect status of the new heaven and the earth being holy. And yet, just on the other side of that event are still the sinners resisting God before the second coming. And so you see that overlay, or the church age, right? We are the Jerusalem, and the nations come to us and worship God, and some will not worship God, and they will be judged. Not in the new heavens and the earth, but at the time of Christ. But all that, again, is compressed into one picture here. So it looks like it's happening on the other side of judgment, if that makes sense. So that, again, is my take in summary form of what is going on in this chapter. A day of judgment, the first point. The day of the Lord, again, mentioned so many times in the book of Zechariah. The day of the Lord sometimes is used for a near future event with respect to the Old Testament saints. Other times for the time of Christ. And yet other times, as we see here, for the second coming of Christ. Now, before we get into some of the details here and describe and unpack this... I want to talk about main interpretations of eschatology. I think probably you've all heard of that word, the study of end times. Jason's over there fist pumping. He's excited. I'm not as especially excited about end times in the sense that, again, I grew up in dispensational premillennialism. We had charts this long uh, describing the end times 
I'm taking everything literally, but not quite literally. <clears throat> Seven-headed beast coming out of the ocean like Godzilla, apparently, but then they turn around and say, well, that's not really literal. It was very confusing that way. Here, they would take the Mount of Olives being split, that Christ would come and uh, land there, and that wasn't the second coming. That was the first of the second coming, right? You have Christ coming invisibly and coming the first time, and then a millennium, a thousand years, and coming at the last at the end of the millennium, because in that millennium, although it's Christ's reign, Christ's reign fails, and Satan rebels against Jesus, ruling out of Jerusalem, and he has to fight him again at the great battle of Megiddo. So that's what I was taught. And that is not orthodox. It is rejected by uh, the the church of the last 2,000 years. That That is specifically the dispensational part, which is that Israel is somehow special. And there is a premillennialism uh, of old that is not dispensational. They don't have a special take on the Jews that way. Um, that's a minority view today. <clears throat> so uh, the main views of what this chapter points to to go back to the point of the text, uh, some believe it's the time of the Maccabees when they rise up and revolt uh, against the powers that be around them, and they have peace for about 100 years. Uh, but during that time, there was much fighting and turmoil from the enemies of God. And then the fall of Jerusalem, so that would be after the time of Christ. The time of Maccabees was before the time of Christ. Here, the fall of Jerusalem is 70 AD, after the time of Christ. Uh, and then again, as I say, others believe it's... Uh, yet to come, or it's a picture of the entire New Testament age. Matthew Henry doesn't give an answer either way for himself. He acknowledges that there's disagreements. Calvin tends to think, as I recall, uh, that it's the time of Maccabees. Now, the post-millennials, which believe that there is a future golden age, the traditional post-mills, believe that before that time comes, a specific demarcation. This is the golden age, boom. Not literally a thousand years, but a very long period of time in which the gospel spreads across the earth. Bad things will happen just before then, and then great things will happen. Bad things happen before the golden age. The pre-mills is there's an end-time battle in Israel before the second coming of Christ. And then the all-mills are a picture of now, that is the millennium, more or less, is a picture of the age between the time of Christ, the first time, and the second coming of Christ, in which bad things happen over the period of time. And amongst the all-millennials, there are two camps, those that expect a specific battle like the, what we read here in verses 1 and 2 and 3 and the deliverance therein before the coming of Christ in this present age. And others like myself who are not expecting signs of Christ's return, per se. Anything substantive that you can say, well, Christ is pretty close to coming. So even amongst the all-males, we have differences of opinion on this matter. Now, to describe the background to the text here, that is to give you a taste of the range of the prophecies given in Zechariah so far, to give you an idea of how chapter 14 is not outside the realm of possibility to be interpreted this way. Chapter 9, verse 13, we read of, in that day, and in the broader context there, of a future prophecy is an immediate future prophecy, that is, a few hundred years from that time period, time of Zechariah, which is the rebuilding of the temple, alluding to Alexander the Great and his empire, where the sons of Zion fight the sons of Greece. And that's in 175 B.C. This is the Maccabean Revolt. After Alexander the Great died, his empire was divided into four parts, and this part was ruled by 
Antiochus, who stopped temple worship, destroyed the Torah rolls, forbade circumcision, and sacrificed a pig on the altar. You don't think those are fighting words, fighting actions? Sacrilegious? Indeed it was, hence the Maccabean revolts in which God raised them up in his special providence. They overthrew him, and they had about a hundred years of peace. I, that could be. I, I don't. I mean, it, the details, again, there's enough details. You're like, oh, something must be going on here. But enough generalities. You're like, uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they follow Jerusalem. Again, uh, great thinking minds disagree historically. We just don't know. When it comes to eschatologies, a lot we don't know other than um, premillennial dispensationalism. That is, the church is the church, and Israel is Israel, and the two shall never meet, and Israel was never the church, and Israel is special. That's always been rejected. The premillennial stuff, that is, dispensationalism, came out in the 1800s uh, and is bunk. <clears throat> Chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, we have the time of Christ. And they will look on me whom they have pierced. And so here we have progression. It's not just uh, 175 B.C., but 175 years even beyond that to the time of Christ uh, in his life when he comes to earth. Prophecies in Zechariah cover that. And so you can see why Zechariah is quite an interesting book of prophecies. At least the entire age we live in until the time of Christ is covered in those chapters as we saw up to chapter 14. And then in chapter 14, it looks like we have something even beyond that. Now, we all know, I think, in our church, in our tradition, Jerusalem is shorthand for the church, God's people, the center where he is and where he meets his people uh, there. So it's a symbolism. It's not literal, as the dispensationalists would try to argue. It's, it's Jerusalem. Something's very special. It's a holy ground and things like that. Uh, but rather, uh, even elsewhere in Zechariah, we see he uses it not just as this is where the physical Jews are in the, in the time of, of Zechariah, but also as a physical representation of the invisible reality of God's people and their relationship with God and his covenant with them, his special place for them. Paul makes this clear in Galatians 4.21, for example, where Jerusalem is now above and its inhabitants are the true people of God, his church. And the metaphor he uses there. Hebrews 12.22, we read, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. It's always been that case. God gave outward, physical, tangible signs of his presence and representing him to his people and also us to the world because Jerusalem was the center of the church of the Old Testament at both those functions. And he's done away with that now. We don't have to be in Jerusalem to worship God. Wherever we worship him in spirit and truth is sufficient. Of course, it was that way even before Jerusalem, right? Remember the patriarchs? They didn't have Jerusalem. So it was temporary, and it was always symbolic that way, although it was physically there because of the weakness of their flesh. And we have then in the opening uh, two verses here a description of judgment, uh, judgment upon the church, although the words aren't there as such, but you see the enemy coming and taking on against Jerusalem and hating Jerusalem, wishing to destroy the body of Christ. And so we, it's an opportunity to understand a little bit about judgment, how there is an external and temporary uh, functionality uh, to judgment itself, where you can have an external with respect to the body and judgment upon the body, internal with respect to the soul and judgment upon the soul, and of course temporary. One could be temporary, uh, like the body and the sufferings we have in this life are but temporary, but they have different objects in that judgment. Judgment used in the broadest sense of bad things happening 
bad things happening upon us have different reasons, however. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, as we know, the judgment from God is a judgment of a father, a judgment of discipline, a judgment of purification, a judgment to make you better, a judgment upon those who hate God, who hate his Lord and Savior, is a different kind of judgment, although both may be external, both may be temporal, they have different purposes. And of course, in the case of the latter, for those who hate the Lord and want nothing to do with them, as we see, presumably these enemies who wish to spoil Israel and divide her and destroy her, they are unrepentant. Their judgment will ultimately be everlasting and forever. God's enemies have the, the Lord God above as a judge against them both in quality of the judgment and duration of the judgment, which is ultimately eternal damnation. In verse uh, 12, we read, for example, in the same chapter of Zechariah 14, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone who seizes the hand of his neighbor and will raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. That's a gruesome picture of external destruction. And Christians may be externally destroyed. As we read in verse 2, that the city should be taken, the houses rifled and destroyed, and the city should go into captivity. Christians die. Their body has suffered a temporal judgment that way. But it's just that, temporal. And it's not eternal. And it's the gateway to eternity in heaven. And although it's hard, and hard to see brothers and sisters go under such suffering in our time and day in which we have seen it. It happens, but God does it for a reason. He is their father, and the judgment they have is temporary. That death is temporary, because we know they have the resurrection, and it will be eternal, and they will have a purified body, and all the pain shall be gone. And so we have, then, a picture here in the first two verses of a New Testament era full of persecution. We know, of course, the Old Testament church suffered and had revolts and difficulties and whatnot. New Testament church, of course, in the book of Acts, we read where they, they suffered Ironically, from the church of God, the old church dying away, as we know, the Jewish church, which eventually apostatized and hated the Lord and persecuted God's people, both Jew and Gentile alike. And as we read in First Peter in the mornings, the suffering that still goes on through the Mediterranean era, there near the end of the closing of the New Testament era, the ten major persecutions, the first two 300 years up to 313 A.D., in which the church had much persecution and destruction, where the Jerusalem of God, which is above, we are part of, the heavenly Jerusalem, was surrounded and hated by Rome and the Gentiles and the pagans. Under the Muslim rule of the Middle Ages, there in the Eastern European and the Mediterranean areas, we have those who hated God and hated his church, more persecution and hatred and attack upon God's people. And the Reformation, of course, in which the Roman Catholic Church wished to wipe out the Reformation and destroy and kill them. The French terror, pirates and despots up to this day and age in China and North Korea, the Middle East, it goes on and on, brothers and sisters. This is one of the powers of this approach, this understanding. The application is so rich that we see it everywhere. People hate the church, people hate the gospel, and it is wishful thinking for us to somehow think, these people, maybe maybe these people think a little different. 
They may think a little different in the sense that they're more open to you, that's true. They're more talkative to you, that's true. But at the end of the day, if they are not believers and do not repent, they have an inborn hatred for God. How it manifested differs. How it's suppressed differs. I suppose you could say it's suppressed, kind of the inversion, a bizarre world version of ourselves, right? But it's there. And it should not surprise us when it explodes on us at times. The hatred for God's people and God's church. The remnant, we read there at the end of verse 2, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Uh, So from the perspective of judgment being temporary in the sense of that those who died, those who were not the remnant, could still be Christians. So if this is indeed uh, a specific prophecy of an event, those who survive uh, doesn't mean those who didn't are not Christian per se. It's just God took them home earlier. And God still kept some around. Or it could be just purely spiritual in the sense of the remnant, which is a theme, a sub-theme in the Old Testament. That there is a remnant amongst the Jews. There is, there's a Jew of the Jew, right? There are those who are followers of the Lord and are not playing religion. That God has preserved for himself, as we read a number of times in the Old Testament, a theme actually picked up in the New Testament. That there does remain a remnant. Yes, many of the Jews have rejected God, but we read in Romans 2 where Paul describes and says, not, you're not a real Jew uh, outwardly, but inwardly. That's the remnant. That's God's people. Shall not be cut off from the city. God's church shall, shall survive. The city of God shall survive. He protects it. He guards it. It is his. And we are his. We are his people. He is our Lord. And that's what it means, as I preached on that last week, before, that God takes care of his people. He has a special plan for us. It echoes chapter 13, verse 9. I will bring the one-third through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. Another function of judgment, as we know, and judgment upon our bodies and difficulties and turmoils in our life is to purify and purge the church and bring out the hypocrites and those who are just playing religion. And solidify us, that God loves us and we love him. The day of deliverance, verses 3 to 11. There's more language here just to describe God's deliverance for his people and how he comes along and protects them and gives them prosperity, as we will read here. God has a fight. Verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. God fights for us, brothers and sisters. He fights for his people and has always fought for his people. When he fights in the Old Testament for the Old Testament Jews, it's not because they are Jews as such, but because they are God's people. For as we know, there were those who were not Jews who were in the Jewish church. Whoever took the covenant and the sign of the covenant and followed the Lord and repented and believed in the Messiah to come were his people and wanted to be with the people, and God said, I will protect them. And those are signs, one sign after another. So although we don't have that promise that God will raise up miracles, right? You're not going to have me raising up a staff to hold back the Amalekites during a battle against the Canadians or something. That's not promised. That's true. But what we learn from those lessons is that God does protect his people. And he protects our soul especially. If he's concerned about the body, how much more is he concerned about the soul? A thousand times more. And he will deliver our souls from eternal damnation, the temptation of the devil. It's a wonderful thought when you're being persecuted. As we go through, you can see it dovetailing to First Peter in the morning, that 
You are doing good. You're going to worship. You're praising God. You're being a good worker. You're avoiding sin and bad influences and people mock you, even persecute you, and sometimes people lose their jobs. More importantly, those who come and try to kill the church because you have a description of terrible things going on in verse 2, they're unrepentant. God will judge them. And he will vindicate you. He fights for you, brothers and sisters. He fights for his church. And we see that in the second coming especially. And so we have a picture here in verses 4 to 5 of Mount Olives. Mount of Olives, uh, where we then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And he fights in the day of battle. He is our warrior for us. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. A mountain split to one end. Why highlight that fact? As I said, I grew up, I was taught this is a prophecy of the first of the second comings of Jesus. He comes first um, after the seven-year tribulation, and then he reigns in his human body for a thousand years, and then there's a great battle at the end. I was never described, I told what, exactly what that was, I don't know why, but I think, we're, we're, I don't, there's no buts and I think, but text tells us that they shall flee through my mountain valley. From the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. The division there will be a division of a valley so they can flee Jerusalem. He makes the way of deliverance, brothers and sisters. He gives a way for us to be delivered. And he has, as we know, in his special providence. I've described that sometimes in history, those great events where people would describe as miraculous. I don't believe in miraculous as such, but, but God worked things in such a way in his providence that it was for our benefit and the benefit of the church, and the church is still here. The church shall not be destroyed. That's the promise of the gospel. We shall be with him forever, and he shall be with us and our Lord. And this split, then, is a picture of God breaking what needs to be broken to give deliverance and a way out for his people. It's a geography is important in this case. The split is east-west, and Azal is just beyond Mount Olives, Mount of Olives. So it's the other side. You can try to go over the mountain, try to go around the mountain. That's difficult when you're trying to flee the enemies. Or God will split it in half and go straight down, a straight shot, go to delivery and safety. That's the picture that we have here. Right where the people can flee more readily. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, as we read. God makes a way of escape for his people. Their enemies cannot trap them, for God is with them. He may may trap your body, as we read in verse 2. You may die if you're not one of the survivors, and whatever persecution may come upon God's people throughout the last 2,000 years, but especially for our souls, and in its second day, that is the return of Jesus Christ, the second time he comes back, we will have deliverance and a way out through his blood, through his power and through his might. This is surely a picture of his power and his might to exercise deliverance and salvation for his people, both body and soul. It's an amazing day when Christ returns to fight for his people. Verses 6 through 7. And it shall come to pass in that day there shall be no light. And even in the evening time there will be light. And there will be living waters, verses 8 through 9. Waters that flow in the winter, they're not frozen. And the land shall be transformed, it shall be leveled out, and the, and the valleys and the hills shall be flattened so that you have a place of implied prosperity where the water can flow through. So here in verses 6 through 7, everlasting day, echoes Revelation twenty-one twenty-three. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb 
is its light. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And here we read, it comes to pass in that day there shall be uh, that there will be no light, the lights will diminish. It shall be one day, that is, no more suns and whatnot up there, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening it shall happen that it will be light. It's all the same, is what it's describing here. Light all the time. And not light from sources of the sun and whatnot, but as we know, ultimately from Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the future truth of God upon all. God is the light, is a picture of God as truth, and illumination and darkness, because darkness is ignorance. And that'll be a glorious day. We'll fully understand much more than we understand now. We'll have all eternity to learn more. It'd be like lifting of the veil, we read in 2 Corinthians. <laughs> It'd be like night and day. I mean, what we have now in the knowledge of the New Testament era is amazing to the Old Testament saints. It was hidden behind all this language of the Old Testament of battles and of kings and forgotten realms and words and ways of thinking and doing to describe something they couldn't comprehend us today and Gentiles being saved. And on the flip side, we Jesus Christ comes, brothers and sisters. We're in heaven, new heaven, new earth. The light, it'll be amazing. It'll be like we don't need anything anymore because we understand so much more. Living waters, verses 8 through 9. In that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half towards the east and the other half towards the west. In both summer and winter it shall occur. It shall flow freely and without restrictions. The season shall not slow it down. That's obviously a picture of the waters of life. Or flowing waters, translated living waters here, shall flow from Jerusalem. Moving waters. Ezekiel's temple, where the water flowing from it is so deep you can no longer plumb its depths, in chapter 37. It's parts of the text like this, in Ezekiel and here, that tell you something else is going on here. This is not a picture of literal, being literal. Not a literal or a physical manifestation as such. Because it's not living waters that saves us, it's Jesus Christ. It's not the, the sun that lasts forever that illuminates us, but as Revelation tells us, it's Christ that illuminates us. And so this imagery is heaping upon hyperbole, as it were, in, in the changing of providence and nature to show the power of God and a new, a new heaven, a new earth that we've never comprehended before. How can we picture such glorious beauty and perfection? where the water shall flow throughout the entire seasons, as you read also of the leaves of the healing and revelation that come upon the nations. Really, it's going to be a leaf, and you have to come up to and put it on your hands and heal your body. Is that what it's saying? Or that it's, it's continual blessings upon God's people every season, all the time, is that picture there. And so here with the waters, echoing again Ezekiel, where it's so deep you can't plummet. You can't go down to the bottom of it. We can do that today. We could go to the. We have. We know how deep uh, the, the trenches are and whatnot. What's it saying? It's saying this is something supernatural. This is a, a different world. It's not a literal temple in Ezekiel 47, and this is not a, a literal day in the sense of what we see passing to and fro or waters flowing across the land, or the land, verse 10, shall turn into a plain and be flattened out. That is the hills and valleys. It's a very hilly area around that, around Jerusalem. But rather, God is shaping nature for the good of you. It's a new heaven and new earth. And so those are your clues there in the text that something else is going on here. Uh, it's something way in the future that is the second coming of Christ. 
And so the land transformation, verse 10, Gibeah, its uttermost border, uh, to Ramon, which lays south of Jerusalem, as was the uttermost southern limit of Judah, as Henry reminds us. That is, it's describing uh, the areas around it, kind of like northeast, west, and south, the greater area to show the depth and the breadth there shall be raised up and above all the world, above all the nations, and the area around it flattened out. The leveling of the land, probably for the ease of the water flowing, certainly to make prosperous because it's difficult to travel through hills and through valleys. But more importantly, God's city, Jerusalem, should be raised up and inhabited. Even though there was a great battle and many died, it shall multiply and people shall live there. And as we read in the next verse, peace and prosperity. Because God is with his people and will be ultimately with them at the second coming and all things shall be perfected and everything will be, all the wrong shall be righted. All the injustice taken care of. And it's a wonderful thing indeed. God is with us, brothers and sisters. He has promised peace for Jerusalem, final safety and peace. God's people shall dwell in safety and be exalted above all uh, uh, over the world. No more destruction, war, or turmoil. Some translate that word destruction, curse. And Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited, what, forever and ever. The people shall dwell in the lo- and no longer shall there be utter destruction. The Lord is God, uh, verse 9, and that day he shall rule over all the earth. Again, a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. The prophecy, as I said, overlays the great return of Christ upon the era in which we live. So that we read both of these at the same time that we see them. Battles and turmoil, we also read of lasting victories of Christ's triumph over the enemies of God and the transformation of nature itself. We have that triumph now, however, in the gospel of Christ Jesus, but we'll have it in its fullness when he returns, brothers and sisters. Let us take this picture of judgment and deliverance as comfort for our souls and for our bodies with the truth that God is in control, that he fights for us and everything will be better for our good and for his glory when he delivers us in the second coming of Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Help us, God, to be encouraged thereby, to stand in awe of this prophecy, to know that it it shall be fulfilled in ultimate form when Christ Jesus returns. And Lord, May we be encouraged thereby in spite of the difficulties we have right now to know that things will not stay this way forever. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing hymn 509. 509.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen. Amen.